Hello and welcome, everybody. We're here for our June teachings. We're between programs. I like our June teachings because they're very low-key. I don't prepare much. I just like to come on and talk to Sangha, talk about a topic, and hear what you have to say as well. So um, recently, just a few weeks ago, we gave vows, uh, we gave refuge vows and bodhisattva vows to a, a lot of our Sangha members. And at the time, we didn't have much time to really talk about it and give some um, give some information about it all. So I thought that this would be, uh, the month of June would be a good time for that. So today we're just going to start off easy. We're going to talk about uh, today is what it, what it is to be a Buddhist, what it means to be a Buddhist. And then the following Sundays, we're going to get a little deeper into the Mahayana practices and what it is to be a Bodhisattva and a Mahayana practitioner. Um, and whether you know what that is or not, the, the classes will be fascinating and open to everyone. We'll explain everything uh, as we go along. So um, uh, one of the things that always really intrigued me about Buddhism uh, and it intrigued me early on, and I've always been really kind of actively uh, investigating it, are all the various reasons that people are drawn to Buddhism. And when, you, when you're a member, especially of a physical Sangha, when you're meeting all these people, um, it's quite extraordinary, let alone the different occupations of everyone. You know, uh, I think Buddhism, because of its open nature and that it's not necessarily a religion, uh, it, it, it's, it's open to, to a broader array of people, I think. So you have, uh, you, know, you have scientists and you have school teachers and you have regular folks that are there. You have artists. Uh, look at the musicians that are drawn to Buddhism. You know, a lot of people don't know that David Bowie, in the height of his career, wanted to become a Tibetan Buddhist monk. He almost gave up his music career to be a Tibetan Buddhist monk. So I can say I succeeded over David Bowie because I did it, because I used to be a musician as well. I'm just being silly. Um, but, um, you know, there's so many people that are, that are drawn to it. And then let alone occupation, then you have, uh, you have like personalities of people. And that's kind of interesting too, where I, again, I think because of the open nature of Buddhism, you get a much broader array of personalities than you do in most groups. And, you know, uh, and then, you know, what, what draws the people to it, right? So some people are drawn to Buddhism for the philosophy. Some people are drawn for the tradition, the religion. Other people are drawn for the mysticism, right? Um, a lot of people are drawn to Buddhism because it's not their the religion they grew up on, right? It's almost like a, a revolt against the others. In fact, I knew quite a few monks that I was convinced the only reason they became monks was to make their parents angry because they came from very rich families. You know? <laughs> and, um, and then you, you have other people that come to Buddhism because of the magic, right? They, they, uh, they read the stories and they want to come for that. So to me, it's quite fascinating, all the different reasons. Uh, for myself, it was philosophy that drew me to Buddhism. Uh, 
uh, I liked all the different aspects. I, you know, thought of that, I liked it all. I liked the stories and the magic and the mysticism. But for me, I was just uh, intellectually, I was really uh, intrigued by Buddhism, the philosophy. I couldn't get enough of that. I was, uh, I was like a lot of people. People, I think they call them seekers, right? A seeker is somebody who, um, who wants to like study all the religions and philosophies and take the best of all of them. And so that was that was me in my uh, thir- in my early thirties. My father had passed away. I I kind of wanted to know more about the way the world worked or where my father might have gone, things like that. Uh, and I read, I, I studied all the different uh, religions. I, I set out to do that. And I, I studied all the various philosophies, all the different religions, the Korah, the Torah, the Quran, uh, Kabbalism, the whole thing. But when I got to Buddhism, it just knocked my socks off. It just, I became a Buddhaholic overnight. I never read anything like it before, right? So that's kind of my story. Um, but um, it's funny that oftentimes people ask me as a monk, they'll, they'll say, what happened to make you want to become a Buddhist? And what, what they're implying by that strange question, what happened? By, my God, what happened for you to be where you are? What, uh, what they mean by that is that they believe that some traumatic event uh, shifted me to Buddhism, like I was a crack addict. Or, or something like that. Because so many people, this is the, uh, and for anybody that, it, that uh, maybe that was insensitive of me, any, for anybody out there that did have to deal with uh, substance abuses, and maybe that is the reason you came. I wasn't making light of it. I just thought it was strange that they just, they just um, you know, think that right off the top of their head that they think that, well, I must have had some traumatic event to find Buddhism. Like a lot of people uh, find Jesus like that, right? You always hear stories of people that are at the end of the rope and then they find Jesus. And so they just assume that. But for me, it wasn't that at all. And it was a very slow process. I I started studying, reading all the various religions. I slowly got into Buddhism. Uh, I think I, I fell in love with the idea of monasticism from the very first Buddhist books I read. I was fascinated by it, and I think I, uh, I fantasized about that right from the very beginning. But it took me uh, ten or fifteen years before I actually took the plunge. Um, so uh, often people think I did a uh, like a, a, a lightning conversion, and I just, what were you before, and when did you convert? And it wasn't like that for me. I, I was a Catholic growing up, and I just slowly moved away from religion. I was a bit of an atheist, and then kind of got more into spirituality and thing later. So um, for me, that's how it worked. It was a slow process. But um, uh, but I was kind of curious out there, would anybody like to share what brought you to Buddhism? And our, our son probably has some interesting thoughts. What do you guys think? Ravi, what brought you to Buddhism? I... <clears throat> I was like searching, like I have a questions, like who am I and what I what I'm doing on this planet, like this, like many spiritual questions, like many years before, like ten years before. So, yeah, I just followed these all these questions and I came here. 
So you could say that you were searching for meaning in life. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good reason to be on the path, yeah? Would anybody else like to share? How about Sharon? What brought you to the Buddhist path? Um, just wanted a more peaceful life and everything that I would read um, from different teachers of the, of the Buddhist practice. Um, it was, it was everyday th things I could bring into my everyday life that I felt like would create a sense of peace. Um, but that was, and I had been a, like Ravi, I had been searching for a long time, um, in and out of a lot of different religions and, uh, supposedly religions. So, yeah, yeah. But, um, I just find a lot of peace within it now that I've, now that I've found it. Yeah, a lot of people come to Buddhism because of that that image that Buddhism has, huh? that it's this lovely, peaceful place, and they come for that peace. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. Anybody else like to share? Ms. Pema. Um, I actually, ow, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I hit the filing cabinet. <laughs> um, Anyway, I, um, well, I got disillusioned with the Christian circle and I had a lot of things going on with my kids, um, when I lived with them. And originally, um, I knew Carl for years, Carl Bondeheit. Some people know, some people don't. I'm afraid we need a shorter answer, Miss Pema. I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> anyway. Um, started off with just meditating, came to this group, and the rest is history. I got to get the oh, phone. <laughs> okay. Boy, good thing I said that she couldn't have gotten the phone. And so, uh, yeah, so it's quite fascinating. And it was the same in monasticism. Why people became monks and nuns was, was equally as fascinating. Oh, Michael, you have a comment? Yeah, I think um, because I have a psychology background, ah. so um, it was kind of the psycho the psychological aspects of it that drew me in, and how they differed from Western thoughts about you know the way the mind works and um, and it's funny because Western psychology is finally starting to catch up. I think <laughs> so. Yeah, and the philosophy part of it as well. Yes, we're, we're kind of the same. I also have that. How about Keith? Yeah, um, I just was became interested in different ways of looking at things. And I did a lot of listening to uh, talks by Ram Dass, by uh, and Alan Watts, things like that. Oh, that's a good that's a good start. Yeah, lovely. And um, what's um, and then the question is, what is it to actually be a Buddhist? So you know, you know, we can just be interested in Buddhism and, of course, groups, especially our group, you know, there's, there's no catch. You can be here for any reason whatsoever. You can, you can be uh, someone of another faith. But when we, when we look at Buddhism, what is, actually is it to be a Buddhist, you know? And so the question is a little bit complicated, you know, to a traditional Buddhist it's taking refuge, right? You're you're not an actual Buddhist until you make the commitment to being a Buddhist. But I think that that's a little silly. 
I think of it if you're a person who just reads Buddhism and you think, oh, this is like one of the, the better um, ideologies for coping with life and you're going to follow it. I think that right there makes you a Buddhist, right? Isn't it up to each one of us individually, right? And then the idea we have uh, in our sangha, we have many people here that are, are uh, identify themselves with other faiths. We have Taoists, we have Christians, we have Muslims in our group, and uh, but uh, they follow the Buddhist path. So then, you know, does that does that does that uh, make us not a Buddhist because we have other faiths? So I think the traditional view of Buddhists is really outdated. I think that this is a much more uh, complex uh, question, that Buddhism can be married to any ideology. So I think, um, I think no one can, can claim who, who is or isn't a Buddhist. I think it, it has to be the individual themselves. And in a sense, simply saying, I identify more with Buddhism than anything else. So I can, I can be a Christian and have a belief in God and also follow the Buddhist path. But I think if I, if I follow the Christian side just a little more, then I call myself a Christian. If I, if I follow the Buddhist side a little bit more, I would call myself a Buddhist. So I think it's up to each one of us individually. You know, what's interesting in my travels around the world, every Buddhist country through Asia, the Buddhism is always mixed with another religion. Um, of course, the monks don't as, as much do it as the lay people do, but there's always an uh, uh, indigenous religion that's present. And what's, what's interesting is, is that for most of the countries, they do the same thing. They talk about uh, Buddhism is all about your, your death and dying well, right? But your day-to-day, -day, they do their, their, uh, their shamanic, their, their uh, insistent their shamanic kind of practices. And um, when I was in Sri Lanka, when I was throughout Thailand, Cambodia, even in Japan, they have the Shinto and, and they mix them with those. So you have your everyday kind of religion and you have your Buddhists. Now, no one would deny that all of those people are Buddhists, even a traditional Buddhist would. And so they all kind of do that as well. Uh, I just brought that up as an interesting point. But what's interesting is even the different traditions kind of have a different take on what it is to be a Buddhist. You know, for the Theravada, who are kind of the, the preservists of the groups, right? They're so focused on preserving the Buddhist teachings. And, um, and especially the monastics of, of preserving a culture and tradition uh, that has been unchanged for thousands of years. So for many of my Theravada monk friends, they would say they became monks to be a part of this ancient tradition that hasn't changed for 2,600 years. I often uh, tease them and I call them bronze-aged Buddhists because they, the forest tradition, you know, they really live just like the Buddha did in his day. They follow the same rules and they're very, they're very strict about it. So, um, for the Theravada, that's, it, it seems like Buddhism is, a, is about tradition and culture. But in my opinion, maybe doesn't that also mean it's, it's a bit more about the past, yeah? Where for me, I think secular Buddhism 
is much more focused on living dharma. That's just my opinion. I might not be right, but it's food for thought. And then you have the Mahayanas, right? Which, uh, which is uh, well. Let, let's 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 break that up. We have Tibetan Buddhism, which, uh, in my opinion, is one of the most religious of all the Buddhists, Buddhist groups, right? And um, they have a they have an approach of uh, of a living Dharma, right? They're they're more focused on the present day. Uh, uh, awakening and accumulation of merit, but deeply, deeply entrenched in in scripture and religion and deities and and uh, ritual and uh, and I'm not sure whether that's the the wonderful aspect of them or the part that that seems to be troubling for them. So that's an individual's choice. Then we have the Zen tradition from the West who kind of revolted against the intellectual Mahayana of India. And they have a very spacious uh, approach to the teachings and what it is. And I think the Zen are, uh, the practitioners there seem to be really focused on awakening. So uh, they're, they're not so much preservists. You know, they're, they, don't, they don't overly stress study and things like that. They're all about sitting on that cushion and uh, doing their practice. So to me, that's a real tradition of practitioners. Yeah. So all of the different traditions kind of have their own take and their own criteria for what makes someone a Buddhist practitioner. In, Therav in the Theravada tradition, as long as you're making decent donations to the monastery, you're a Buddhist. <laughs> They're happy with you. Other traditions, they would much rather see, urge you to be practicing, right? Especially in our secular Buddhist tradition. Yeah. Um, so, and then we have walking the Buddhist path. So, you know, it's one thing to, to call ourselves a Buddhist and to figure out, well, what does it mean to officially be a Buddhist path? What is it to walk the Buddhist path, right? This is different for a lot of us, isn't it? And again, this also has this great range of different personalities. You know, for, so, for many people, you know, engaging in Buddhism is intellectual and philosophical. And, you know, they're, they're really into study. Uh, and some traditions, you know, we have, we have tradi traditions are usually divided into two. We have, the, we have the study traditions and the practice traditions. Now, with that said, throughout Buddhism and according to the Buddha himself, that there has to be a proper balance between practice and study to reach awakening, right? So with that said, all traditions believe that, but they all have a different opinion of what that balance is. Some people think the proper balance, the middle, is more study. Others think the proper middle is more practice. So each group is different in that respect. The Tibetan tradition, the four schools of Tibetan Buddhism are divided right down the middle and they have two study and two practice. I come from a study tradition, the Geluk school and uh, really heavy academic uh, studies. That's mostly what I did in the monastery. And guess what? In the monasteries, they almost never meditate. 
the practice traditions of Tibetan Buddhism, they do, but they really take it too far. And as I mentioned before, the Zen tradition and the East Asian traditions, Chan Zen, uh, they're very much practice oriented, right? Any question you ask your teacher, he says, he says, yeah, go sit down. <laughs> I say, what's the meaning of life? Go sit on your cushion. That's it. Now, and, and so now somehow they think that that's the right balance. Um, now, if we look at the, we, I think we, the best thing to do is look at the Buddha and see, well, how did the Buddha do? Well, the Buddha was pretty big on, on teaching as well, but the Buddha seemed to have a nice balance, didn't he? Right? You know, his, 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 uh, his monks were practitioners. They spent a lot of time on the cushion. They spent a lot of time in ethics, right? Ethics is such a huge thing in Buddhism. For many of you that have already taken our Skillful Living course, we talked about the foundation of Buddhism is represented by a triangle. And the bottom of the triangle is ethics or goodness. We like to call it goodness. On one side of, on the, one side of the triangle is wisdom. On the other side of the triangle is concentration. And that's a funny word. What they really mean is samadhi. And that means a meditative state. So in Buddhism, you have goodness on the bottom, you have wisdom on the one side, and on this side, you have cultivating meditative states or cultivating an awakened mind itself, right? But it's experiential, right? And so, um, and so uh, in the Buddha's day, they represented that triangle, I think, very evenly. The Buddha gave many, many discourses, right? He didn't just tell people to go sit on their cushions. The Buddha spent a lot of time and wrote and delivered a lot of teachings into the nature of reality. Some traditions believe that if you just if you just practice and you just ask the same questions that the Buddha did, you'll arrive at the same place. I see the logical argument, except for the fact that just because the Buddha could do it doesn't mean other people could do it. And the Buddha is considered what was considered to be one of a kind so i think we could all benefit from the experience of the buddha right so i'm pretty pro study and secular buddhism tends to be very pro study as well but it is about finding that balance between them and that's another thing that really really distinguishes all the different traditions of how much they do of each um, so when so when we talk about uh, walking the Buddhist path, to some people they read books, they watch YouTube videos, and they get on Facebook and argue with all their friends. And have you seen some of these Facebook Buddhist groups? Are they? Would, can you call them Buddhists when they're so contentious, when they're so angry? And they lack so much kindness, right? Now you understand why ethics and goodness is the foundation, right? So for SBT, the very foundation and the first thing we do as, as practitioners and our first training as we become, as we take refuge is goodness. And of course, everyone here knows that have taken refuge vows, your vows outline that goodness. And uh, you don't have to take refuge vows to follow this. In, in SBT, we use the, the 10 virtuous and non-virtuous actions as our refuge vows. Now, those are recommended for everyone, whether you, take, whether you want to commit to 
formally commit to the, them or not is irrelevant whether you take vows that's up to you that's but anyone and everyone that's a buddha should practice them and um and so and and they're they're simple they begin with uh respecting protecting and nurturing life uh respecting others property meaning uh only only taking what is freely given um to avoid sexual misconduct uh which means to to abide in wholesome sexuality yeah? uh then we have uh speaking honestly uh speaking the truth and being honest um speaking uh politely and kindly speaking in ways that create harmony speaking meaningfully and uh meaningfully and moderately cultivating contentment and uh contentment and non-attachment cultivating goodwill and cultivating right view the right view is the proper perspective of the nature of reality in ourselves so as you can see it's it's pretty pretty straightforward but it does nicely outline what we mean by goodness yeah i think that that really defines what buddhism means by goodness so for uh, for myself in spt i think this is by far the, the most important thing in our practice that we start with this foundation now with that said uh it's important that we always keep in mind that it's holistic and i always have to stop myself from saying this is the most important thing in buddhism because you know you want to say that but there isn't one that's more important than the others i mean we, you know goodness ethics and uh, and developing mental uh, meditative states they're all essential but there's a reason why goodness is the foundation so that's where we start when we're walking the buddhist path we start with goodness so if you could now if you can kind of remember some of those that i talked about and now you can imagine some of the some of those facebook groups or some maybe some people that you know that have been buddhist but you thought were a bit contentious and you could see how uh, by missing that right how uh, how difficult uh, it would be to uh, walk the buddhist path so the very first aspect in buddhism and the path is this idea of goodness and kindness right and you notice that four of them are related to speech uh, so in spt we like to we like to make it easy and and, and put them together with the uh, the four expressions of goodness which is soft and beautiful thought soft and beautiful speech soft and beautiful behavior soft and beautiful action i'm often asked uh, what's the difference between behavior and action action is the things we do generally intentionally right our volitional actions um but behavior is different behavior is the way we carry ourselves right and it also relates to non-action and reaction so behavior is how we carry ourselves how we react to things and then action is those those volitional intentional things that we we do in in life so for me when we walk the buddhist path buddhism has to start right there with the with the uh, the four expressions of goodness and that has to be mastered before we go anywhere else where else and and if somebody was to ask for advice a practitioner and they were missing that that's the first thing that i would point out I would say well I think you really need to go back 
and uh, work in this. Uh, once you have that, once you've habituated that goodness, then you can dig into some real practice, right? But our lives have to begin there. Being kind, being friendly, being decent, being a good person, being responsible, mature, honest. You know, this is what it means to be a Buddhist, right? It's simple. I often think, uh, you know, when I was in school, the the scholarly aspect, the academic aspect of of the teachings was just uh, was uh, so over the top. I, I remember just every week we'd learn different practices and we did learn different techniques, never having enough time to practice any of them, just being inundated with more and more information. And uh, and now I feel like uh, the the proper way to start the Buddhist path is to really break it down into the the uh, simplicity of it and to realize that different minds are different some people need some people's minds need a more complex approach they're more academic they're just minds are different some people don't get things if they're if they're too simple their mind doesn't latch on so we, we have to be open to that but that definitely has to be the starting point so that's what we begin we begin with with uh with goodness, right? Is kind and beautiful directed from the Buddha? Sure is, yes. Or is it interpretation? No, it's right there. Um, the uh, uh, soft and beautiful in one way or another, yeah, you can find that in all the Buddha's teachings, but it is my own language, right? I noticed that a refuge vow say nothing about the consumption of alcohol. No, because they're they're not meant for monastics and taking other drugs that could cloud the mind. Is there a reason for this? Monastics are given those vows. So um, refuge vows are meant for lay people, for everyone. It's the starting point for everyone. And the idea is that it's not it's 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 a lighter commitment. And then as you progress and and you you wish to progress faster and you wish to actualize your aims sooner, you can take on other vows to deepen your practice, to challenge yourself more, right? Bodhisattva vows would be next. Bodhisattva vows also don't mention intoxicants, right? They get more into intention and, uh, and, uh, and again, being how you are, behavior, how you are in the world. Uh, Refuge vows and bodhisattva vows are directly related to awakened behavior. You're mimicking an awakened being, and they're they're aspirational. So you know we do the best we can for when we first take them. It's nearly impossible to not break them, but they're aspirational. We move towards them. But then for monks and nuns, the Buddha was very clear that we have no intoxicants of any kind. Oh, so that's walking the Buddhist path. And then we have this idea of practice or study, practice, and training. So we've talked about this before. Uh, Study is reading books, watching some YouTube videos. I think all of us probably entered Buddhism in that way. And then once you find some interest in it, you might want to actually do some practices, which I think right away people would get into meditation, mindfulness, and there's other practices. There's mind training. There's uh, there's various uh, practices, breath work, things like that. But then when a person becomes serious, they may want to 
begin their training. And training is the point where you, you take, you commit to practice and study with vows. And so, uh, and, 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 uh, you can train on your own again, especially uh, in in secular Buddhism. No problem. A traditional teacher, if you weren't taking vows, he would he would only let you go so far. It, it's kind of like they want you to commit to see if you're if you're serious about your your training and that you're not going to quit. That you're gonna you you know if he's going to teach you, he's going to take the time to teach you. You're going to uh, embody those teachings and you're going <clears> to <throat> follow them. So I think that there's that that idea of commitment for the teacher's sake. I don't have it. I don't care about that. Um, but in in uh, for us, uh, no one ever has to take vows. You can do all the practices we have on your own. Some people like the commitment. To some people, it gives them strength that they're committed with a community. It is for me. For me, my my monk vows, the commitment I made for my monk vows, amazing. It's in fact commitment is one of the great parts of the path for me. There's such, there's such uh, energy and power that come from committing yourself to something. So that's up to each one of us individually. But at a certain point when you, when you become really serious about your practice, you might want to uh, get into training. And that, at that, that point, your first training would be refuge vows. You take the vow to do your best to uphold them. And then you move on the bodhisattva vows, which anyone can take. And then after that, you'd move into monastic vows. Um, so when we talk about Buddhism, uh, there's often a lot of discussion of whether it's, what exactly is it as an ideology? Is it a religion? Is it a philosophy? Everybody has a different view. Would anybody like to share their view? What's Buddhism to you? What do you think? It's not a trick question, though I know the answer. <laughs> I got one up on all of you. What do you guys think? It's a way to hack the brain. Oh, I like that, Merlis. Yeah. Hacking into the brain. And maybe we could say gain mastery over the mind. <laughs> That's kind of the Buddhist way of saying hack the brain. Yeah. Ravi? Yeah, for me, it's a path. It's a path to like a practical path for me to uh, to better my life, living wonderfully. Beautiful. And Darcy says it's a way to get direction on living and helping others. And you know these are all right. Anybody else like to join in? We're doing a little participation today. Because I watch the recordings and Denzel Tarpa talks to me. What do you think, Dylan? I want to hear from you. Uh, it's a comprehensive path for ending suffering for yourself and others. Oh, I think he. I think you read that out of a book. He's cheating. I'm teasing, Dylan. That was a beautiful. No, that's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Anybody else? How about the birthday girl? What does Yoli think? I actually agree with Dylan that uh, for me at this point in my life is to um, suffer less and to um, 
try to help others recognize, you know, or help them in some way or another relieve that suffering. Um, because I, I think that that is my goal is not to suffer. And not to suffer means to understand the way my mind works. I'm a, I love studying um, the Dharma. And so, um, and it's helped me relieve my own personal suffering as well as it's helped me to maybe touch other people's lives in a more positive way. Oh, that's lovely. I want you to not suffer as well. Keith, Anybody else? Keith has mentioned in the chat, it's about seeing reality as it is. Yeah, the true nature. And I would say awakening. <laughs> Leave it to me to give the shortest answer. And what is awakening? It's to be free of our suffering, to wake up to our mind encapsulates everybody else's answers. <laughs> it's like the price are right. Price is right when somebody says one dollar at the end. <laughs> that's I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. What do you think, Neil? I think it is about reaching awakening through following the Buddhist the Buddha's path. Yeah. Thank you. And I think when I just say awakening, actually, that's not really fair. That's I would say that's the aim. That's not what it is. And in uh, in our text, we talk about um, we talk about uh, Buddhism isn't a religion or philosophy, but a dharma, a teaching path and way of life. And of course, it's a, a teaching path and way of life aimed at awakening. So that's kind of my idea and uh and it's a holistic path to improve one's mind heart within our current life situation so to me that's the i think that that's one of the big differences with sbt uh it seems like uh, you know it's really easy to get caught up into the academics of it all and uh, and i really love that side of it all when i was in the monastery and uh, my uh, the one academic book i wrote tibetan buddhist essentials you know, it was really fun to put that together. But as I began to awaken, you know, I just, the simplicity of the whole thing just started to uh, occur to me. And and I think more than that is that I traveled the world looking for awakened beings. I traveled the world, you know, and all of you know that I've, with just my begging bowl, I've stayed in over 60 monasteries and all of the different Buddhist traditions and all the countries and from Zen monasteries and caves in the Himalayas, the forests of, of, uh, of Thailand, Sri Lanka, Cambodia. And, um, and what I was looking for, I was looking for enlightened beings. I was looking for uh, some sign of the fruits of the practice. And now I see the benefits of Buddhism everywhere. You can't help notice that. Buddhist uh, cultures tend to be more compassionate, and uh, and there's there's some wonderful qualities. But I didn't really see the level of awakening that I was really looking for. Um, I was in a monastery of five thousand monks, and uh, and though I think that Tibetan Buddhism does what it says, it does what it claims, it really can produce these amazing masters. But in my opinion, it was very few. You know, only only some extraordinary beings 
really can go through that curriculum and become awakened. And so uh, I became uh, kind of, uh, uh, I lost, uh, lost a lot of heart in the tradition because of that. And I thought, you know, that's not success. Success is, is having a, having a curriculum that can really produce some awakened beings that can awaken a great amount of people with little effort. And so, uh, I, I, that's what I did when I started SBT. That's my goal. So, uh, I set out for that. And, and the idea was, um, to have a simple curriculum that really worked. So with SBT, we're kind of it's kind of a laboratory at the same time. It's a Dharma group that we're trying to see, trying some of these practices and see how they work. And, um, but I started awakening when I, when I gained a very broad uh, education. When I was just in Tibetan Buddhism, I didn't really have any feelings of awakening. And then when I, when I reached out and I, and I met other people, including studying with Christian mystics and uh, different religions, Hindu, Hindu, uh, uh, mystics and ashrams and things like that. It seemed like I started to be able to put it all together, and uh, and then I felt like I was really getting somewhere. I was really beginning to awaken, and and develop some of those qualities that I read about. Of course, I'm still on my journey, and then from that, from the successes I had, I wrote a lot of these practices that you that you're now doing with the group, and the hope is that. Uh, me being not being some amazing practitioner or not being some great scholar, if they work for a little old me, then there's a good chance they work for regular folks too. And so that's the hope. And so in SBT, I try to keep it that way. You know, we don't, we don't get deep into all kinds of academic uh, topics and questions because um, I want to focus on living Dharma. So, and I think secular Buddhism does. I'm, well, not all. You look at Stephen Batchelor's group, and they're very strongly academic. But I like to focus on living Dharma. What do we need today to awaken, right? What do I need today to become a wiser, kinder person? Yeah. So that's the that's the goal here of uh, in SBT. And of course, everything we're doing, we're, we're uh, in Buddhism is aimed at one thing, which is right view. And right view is uh, the correct perspective of life. Perspective is the way you see yourself, your reality, your relationship to reality, your relationship to your environment, having the proper understanding of that, the right perspective of that. This is right view. Figuring out who and what you are, how life works, how to engage properly with your environment. And through that knowledge, guess what? Life becomes easier. Boy, that's not brain surgery, is it? Right? When we understand something, we can manage it. Right? So it's very simple. That's what it is. So often Buddhism likes to talk about wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. I like the word understanding because wisdom seems oftentimes like some some special knowledge only known by the greats living up on their mountaintops, where to me, what I learned from Buddhism is more like understanding. It's everyday knowledge of, of how, I, how I work in the world. It's very, uh, very down to earth for me. Okay, I'm going on too much here. So um, the other thing about, uh, let's talk about choosing a tradition. So this is an interesting thing. Many of us, have started in Buddhism in different places. 
I started in Zen just because it was a Zen temple in the city that I lived in. There were no other Buddhism around anywhere. But I was in the Tibetan Buddhism from all the books I read and things, I, uh, videos I watched with the Dalai Lama. Um, but I've made my way through quite a few different ones. And um, I spent a lot of time studying Theravada. I've been, in, I've been uh, a member of three of the four uh, Tibetan Buddhist schools. And so uh, oftentimes people, are, people coming into uh, Buddhism are perplexed by the choices. And how do you pick one, right? You could spend a whole lifetime studying each one of them and not know the answer to the question. So um, it, oftentimes what you just have to do is you have to follow your heart, you know, and just and hope that somehow you fall into the right place. For some people, they might meet a certain teacher that they fall in love with, and then it makes it really easy. This is my teacher. I like this guy. That, you know, that becomes your tradition, your school. For other people, it's a little bit more tricky. And this is another thing that secular Buddhism offers, is that secular Buddhism, like ourselves, though, I, th I like to think that we're based uh, on a Tibetan tradition. We're open to all traditions. And in a sense, you don't have to pick a tradition to be a secular Buddhist. In fact, you know, we, uh, we favor agnosticism. And so in so many ways, uh, not choosing is often the best choice to be open to them all, to be, to be open to the wisdom of all of them. So um, I, I like that aspect of secular Buddhism that there isn't, the other traditions have a, have a big thing about, you know, you have to commit to our tradition and nobody else's. In, in, the, in the monastery, uh, they wouldn't even, they'd get angry if I gave a donation to another uh, house group, even within the same monastery. They say, no, no, no. You take care of this one. They were, yeah, they were, they were, it was kind of strange, right? And if they heard that you were studying another tradition, that wasn't a good thing. In fact, Mahayanas in their vows, they have a vow that they will not fall down into the lower vehicles of the Theravada. Oh, eclectic pagans. Yeah, we're eclectic Buddhists. So, um, and so that also brings up the question of, well, what's the, What's the pure? Is there one tradition that's the most pure of them all? And of course, each tradition will raise their hand and say, yes, mine, right? <laughs> you know, the, the Theravada believes that theirs is the oldest and the most, the, the more proper. The Mahayanas believe that they have secret teachings that the Buddha taught to only the greatest students and they follow those. Tantric Buddhism also believes, they believe that they're the only ones to receive the highest of all Buddhist teachings. Very special teachings only they receive. Everybody else is kind of like in Buddhist elementary school. Yeah. And then even when you get into schools, when you're in Tibetan Buddhism, yeah, the Nyingma think that they're the best. The Galup think they're the most intellectual, the most correct. And it, it, it even comes down to just teachers. So, um, but the fact is there is no one pure Buddhism, right? To, to, to entertain that question is to not understand Buddhism. Because, uh, you know, from, from the very beginning, Buddhism has always been changing. And by definition, it, it should. Buddhism is open to, uh, to uh, you know, Buddhism embraces change. 
And so um, even the Theravada tradition who think that they're, they're uh, holding the, the, the purest of the ancient Buddhist traditions, they didn't come around. They weren't formed until, whoa, something like 500, 400 years after the Buddha uh, passed. So all of the traditions are, uh, are, are, uh, have changed from that. Every tradition moving into a different country takes on uh, the values of the customs of that country and makes Buddhism applicable to their culture. And this was the Buddha's advice. The Buddha told his monks, he sent monks out in the early days to the world and he said, teach the Buddhism, teach the Dharma in any way you see fit, in any language that benefits people. So the Buddha himself gives that advice. And that's the job of the teacher, to skillfully transmit the Dharma in a useful fashion to people. So I follow that. And that's why we don't, we don't do Tibetan, Tibetan terminology and Sanskrit and Pali. I think it just complicates everything. Yeah. So, um, so I don't believe that there's any one pure tradition. It just doesn't exist. Even within the same monastery, you have teachers that disagree. You know, in, in something like uh, in the Forest Thai tradition, which is the, probably the most traditional out of all, they have schools that disagree with each other. <laughs> you know, Ajahn Chah's group is considered to be a little too progressive for some. And uh, so... Um, yeah, even they can't decide on that, right? Okay. So, and then uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about choosing a teacher. So in different traditions, uh, how you choose a teacher uh, has a little bit of a different uh, approach. Um, in the Theravada tradition, it's pretty straightforward. The Your teacher is a monk and... Um, you uh, and you venerate the, your teacher very highly. You know they, they treat monks and teachers just like gods in 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 Thailand. It's quite a place to visit if you're a monk. Yeah, it's the Tibetan tradition is not that way. <clears throat> um, the Zen tradition teachers can very can be very aloof, not saying much, just hitting you with a stick and telling you to sit back on your cushion. <clears throat> Excuse me. The Tibetan tradition has one of the strongest uh, affinities to teacher and, and guru. And the idea is in the Tibetan tradition, especially in Tantra, that they claim that enlightenment is not even possible without the teacher themselves. So they put the teacher on such a pedestal. This has led to a lot of problems in the West, as maybe some of you have seen on the news. <clears throat> Let me have a drink of water. Uh, you know, all the all the different religions seem to have a great deal of the same institutional problems. You know, <clears throat> problems uh, with um, with money, and there's been sexual abuse in in a lot of the different groups. And of course, uh, Buddhism is, is no different. Those same stories are there, but but it seems like Buddhism has done uh, uh, <clears throat> hasn't been affected as much, uh, but it is there. And um, and in Tibetan Buddhism, one of the, the the real problems is that there's so much focus on just devoting your whole life to the guru, uh, to the point where anything that if you if, especially if you're in tantra, anything that the teacher says you have to do, anything, and then 
So as you can imagine, that's problematic. And then you're not sure if the teacher's telling you to do something bad, he's testing you and you're going to do it or whatever. But nevertheless, this is something that I wanted to move away from. And, um, and I often say, uh, and I don't think Ravi likes it when I say it, but I say the age of gurus is over. Um, I think in Hinduism, they have a healthier idea of the guru, just seeing it as teacher. But in uh, Tibetan Buddhism, guru is another level. So in, in, in secular Buddhism, uh, in our group, SBT, I like to see, to, for us to see the teacher, just like we would any other teacher in the West. And if the, of course, the hope is that you respect your teachers uh, for the fact of uh, the effort that they put in and their commitment. But I think, uh, you know, teachers like everybody else, they have to, they have to earn uh, respect and, uh, and commitment from the students themselves. Um, SPT uh, likes the idea of moving away from authority. Leadership is fine. Leadership is useful. But the idea of that anyone in our organization, even a monk, has spiritual authority over another makes absolutely no sense to me. The idea of spiritual authority that any one person can tell someone else what to do is uh, is is ludicrous. Um, of course, if I was talking to the Dalai Lama, I would respect his experience and commitment. And but um, <clears throat> but the idea of authority, we don't do an SBT. We don't tell people what to do or what to think. We educate people. We have classes that teach the Buddhist teachings, and what you do with them is completely up to you. We just offer uh, teachings and programs and uh, things like vows and things to facilitate your practice. You know, at the end of all of our meditations, we say, you know, SBT was founded for one reason, one reason only, to support you, the practitioner. And we mean it. There's nothing you have to do for us, you know. Um, in education, we believe in one size fits all. Yeah, isn't it terrible? It doesn't help. No. All students, yeah. Yeah, the idea that, uh, and, and in Buddhism, it's the same. In the monastery that I was in, 5,000 monks, one curriculum, they have they have one view of the mind. And if you don't fit in, you know, you're welcome to go somewhere else. And isn't that crazy, right? You know, nowadays we know there's so many different types of mind. And there's so many types of intelligence, right? So modern takes in Buddhism is that we respect the individual. This is why we don't tell people what to do and what to believe, because I'm not arrogant enough to tell you what to do with your mind. I can just offer practices and assistance. We all have to awaken ourselves. It's an, Even the Buddha said he could only point the way, right? There's a picture of the Buddha pointing to the moon. They say that the Buddhas can't, can't heal with their hands. They can't wash away sin with water. They can't share their enlightenment with others. The only thing the Buddhists can do is teach the nature of reality, which is right view, right? Nature of reality is right view. So <clears throat> that's very clear. Um, and uh, yeah, so I always had a problem with that. Yeah, The Tibetans would really just pigeonhole everyone. Uh, I was uh, I was visiting a teacher and he was teaching two young students, two monks. They're probably 10, 10 years old each. And then I walk in and I say, hello. And the teacher says, oh, these are my students. This is uh, this is Nima. He's really bright. Uh, this is uh, this is Tonglan, and he's stupid. And the boy just looks up at me like, yeah, yeah, that's me. Ten years old. He's already pigeonholed for life as being stupid. 
And so I saw a lot of these things and I thought, you know, this isn't my idea of awakening. And I thought, uh, I thought, you know, maybe we can do a little better. Uh, lastly, I'd like to talk, uh, I'd, I'd like to share the guidelines for choosing a suitable teacher. And um, <clears throat> I'm going to have to <clears throat> make sure that I, I hold up to this, these values. This is uh, the Dalai Lama likes to give this uh, guideline. Uh, so uh, a suitable teacher, they uh, have tamed their mind and appear to be emotionally stable and clear-headed. They possess a good knowledge of the scriptures. They possess proper ethical behavior. They uphold the principles within the teachings. They possess an appreciation, loyalty, and conviction towards the teachings. They work diligently to benefit others, sharing dharma, and increasing others' happiness. That's quite lovely, isn't it? <clears throat> and then he goes on to say, the only qualification of a Buddhist teacher that matters is the benefit to the student. Their development of realization and their personal transformation. All titles, certificates, lineages, and presumed attainments are irrelevant if the teacher's students do not progress. Isn't that lovely? So oftentimes when I think to myself, well, how am I doing? I always look to you guys. I always look to this wonderful song and I think, man, I got to be doing something right. I have the, uh, the most lovely, beautiful, kind sangha in the whole wide world. Anyways, that's about all I wanted to share with everybody. Does anybody want to share any thoughts? I know Donna's been holding all her questions. <laughs> She's got them all listed down. <laughs> I went on a little long. I was hoping this was going to be a short teaching. <clears throat> I didn't take any notes today. So. Yeah. I, I did not. Oh, it was an informal class today. Yeah. It Keith. was fascinating. Oh, thank you. Donna. Oh, thank you. Thank it was you. fascinating. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Thank I you. think uh, it's important for people to engage Buddhism in the right way, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's just, man, first things first. Goodness, man. And and don't rush it. Stay on goodness for a long time, man. Oh, man, just embody goodness. See it in everything you do. Soft and beautiful speech, uh, uh, thought or mind, speech, behavior, action. That can be your practice for a long time, boy. <clears throat> That'll change your life. Keith. Somebody might want to help me with this quote or maybe post it in chat or I'll post it if I can find it. But about education, there is a saying um, that supposedly Einstein said, but I, I don't think it, it's actually his, The about the fish being told he's stupid because he can't climb a tree. <laughs> so, so anyway, just a thought in terms of, you know, the way we can approach education. Yeah, they're different, respecting the different types of minds. That's, that's something that a teacher really has to, uh, has to uh, accept and embrace when they get into teaching. And it stops people from telling others what to do. If you notice, I don't think I ever do. I, try, I really try not to. I give information for people and I support people 
in their own choices. <clears throat> Darcy wants to know if a Sangha member can, um, can a Sangha member become a lay teacher, if that's a term? It is. And, and through all traditions, there is a history of lay teachers. Um, as you can imagine, not as many as monastics, right? Monastics are kind of groomed for teaching. And in SBT, we will also. SBT, we're going to offer something different. We're offering, we're going to be offering lay ordination as well as monastic ordination. And the question, it's just a degree of commitment. The, each each uh, category has more vows. So you have refuge, 10 vows, bodhisattva vows, 26 vows. Lay vows, we haven't figured them out. There'll be a few more, and then monastic will be even more. Um, <clears throat> but none of those necessarily guarantee you'll be a teacher. Uh, people, when they're ready to teach, they teach. And that could be anybody here. And it could be regardless of vows. Somebody with no vows at all could teach an SPT. All they got to do is impress me. <laughs> but it's not knowledge that impresses me. It's their, it's their being. It's their behavior. It's the way they hold themselves. That's what we show off as Buddhists. We don't show off what we know. Well, we do that a little bit. <laughs> we show off who, how we are. That's how, how Buddhists should show off to the world. Our patience, right? Our joy, our love. Yeah. Anybody else? Oh, didn't, uh, who was it? Somebody had their hand up, didn't they? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, there, Tenzin Pema. Yeah, I just wanted to say um, the, the one thing, um, it's not really, you know, too important but for me it's funny how like most religions you gotta be a part of you, you, because you know salvation whatever and it's it's pretty cool that secular buddhism you know in in your class it's like it's your choice you know what i mean like you you decide you know, it's it's all a matter of you and what you feel and what um, you experience. And should it be any other way? Isn't that true, huh? Yeah, they got the good tools. <clears throat> they got the big stick. Listen to me or you're going to hell. Boy, that'd be an easy one to swing around, wouldn't it? If you don't make a donation today, you're all going to hell. Tibetan Buddhism has it too. You know, Buddhism has it. They threaten hell a lot. Especially in Tantra, if you don't, if you tell the secrets that you're taught, there's a special hell for you if you're a Tantric practitioner sharing secrets. So, yeah, but I don't believe in heaven and hell. That seems pretty, I think it's just a carrot and a stick. So we have the carrot, or let's say the, the strawberry cream pie, something a little tastier than a carrot, which is just our happiness in our lives, right? And there's no, we have no stick. Yeah. Donna. I, I certainly agree that it's nice. It's very nice to be here because I don't have to be. And I, can, <laughs> I don't have to be here. So, you know, I want to be here because I don't have to be. Well, you have to be here because you know I'll be sad if you don't. No, no, no. <laughs> you'll, you'll understand, but I want to be here. 
Guilt is the only stick I have. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I used to be. <laughs> yeah. Stick. Oh, well said. It's interesting to to hear that Buddhism also has these little sects, these little com- uh, compartments of you must do this. Yeah. I never really there, thought of it that, that way. Lots of dogma. And, you know, and, and though they say, you know, everything is to be investigated, but you're expected to come to their answer. Right? You know, they want you to examine it, but then you know you're supposed to come to that answer, or be quiet. So yeah, it's. I don't think it's. Yeah, I think there's still a lot of dogma there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, boy, the what the mind needs is freedom. The mind needs joy to awaken. You know that rigidity. I think that's what was always getting in the way of my awakening. There was so much rigidity in my in my path for 13 years or something just everything was rigid you know what practices i had commitments that i had to say every day or i might go to hell <laughs> you know and uh and even if i was sick i was, was supposed to say them or record them so i could play them and and i just at one point i just threw the whole thing out the window I said, and it wasn't that I didn't believe it or I had anything against it. I just threw it out the window and said, I'm just not doing that. It's wonderful. I'm not making a judgment about it. I'm sure the whole thing works for people. I'm just deciding I don't want to do it. And so I started to build something else. And when I traveled the world, I was trying to look for a new home. I was thinking, well, maybe I could join the Theravada tradition or the Chan or the Zen or and I traveled over 60 monasteries, and uh, I just couldn't find a home anywhere. And then I thought, well, I guess I'm going to have to make one for myself. And I bet there's a lot of other people that would like to join me that they can't find homes in all those other ones as well. So that's how SBT started. A free place, right? SBT is a free place for everyone. Any other questions before we? What do you think of Savasta Ayabi? Ah, oh, well, lovely. I think Pema Chidron is a lovely teacher, and um, and uh, I probably don't know enough about her current work to to give some kind of a strong uh, a review of it. Um, you know, her the tradition she's in is a, is is quite traditional. I think she's progressive for that. I I was a member of the tradition, the uh, Karmakaju tradition that she is. She's in. I was a member of that for many years, and um, you know, there it's also very dogmatic. I, I know that she's very progressive. Um, so it's just a question of on that on that spectrum of where teachers are, because like the Dalai Lama himself is very progressive, and other teachers aren't. FPMT. The Foundation for the Preservation of Mahayana Teachings, which is one of the biggest of the Tibetan Buddhist traditions. They're very traditional. So each one of them, each teacher, you got to find the the right place on that spectrum. And I represent a place on that spectrum as well. I'm not as secular as Stephen Batchelor, but I'm much more progressive than others. So we all have a place and every every group you're going to join, you'll find that that that's true and sometimes it changes oh what do you think we've done enough gabbing 
Did we have a nice Sunday? It was a pleasure talking about all of this with everybody. I hope it motivates everybody. And again, for myself, when I break things down to just to a simple, uh, simple base, it's easier for me to practice and the results are attainable. And so, you know, every day, the first things I think about as soon as I open my mind, and I mean as soon as I open my mind, I've trained myself. I think of goodness, beauty, and joy. I call it the three pillars of SBT, right? That's the first thing that my mind goes to in the morning. And then though that's the, that's the direction, the compass, the guiding light for my day every day. Embracing goodness, beauty, and joy. And beauty is as far as like, I really mean not, not just aesthetic beauty like paintings and things, but I'm the beauty of friendship, the beauty of sangha. Look what a bunch of beautiful people you are. The beauty of existence, the beauty of compassion, of family. Yeah, and then joy. <clears throat> oh, hey, with that said, why don't we end today's uh, teaching with our altruistic prayer? May all be healthy, may all be prosperous, may all be well, may all be present, free of past regret and future worry. May all abide in constant appreciation, which is a source of great joy and contentment. May all realize their true nature and the true nature of reality, which is awakening, which is also right view, realizing our true nature and the true nature of reality. And so we have an easy, easy week for Tenzin Tarpa. I'm not doing anything till next Sunday. We have our daily teachings going on, and we have all our new instructors uh, leading the meditation. So it's fun watching them make mistakes. You should come. It's just, I'm teasing, I'm teasing. They're perfect. They don't make mistakes. Uh, but please come. We're doing different meditations every day. We did a sound meditation today. And uh, so it, it's quite interesting. We do that at 1600 uh, UTC every day. Oh, last thing. Guess what next Sunday is? It's our day of observance, right? This is a day started by the Buddha, one day a month that, Everybody focuses on their practice, focuses on study, practice, and sangha. It's a day that most, the lay community would all go to the temple to receive teachings and to meditate and things like that. So we facilitated by offering an online retreat where you can come and practice with us. It's fun and easy. We do some meditations. We do some teachings. We do some uh, sangha chats where we can all talk. You don't have to participate in the whole event. You can come in to just parts. You can pop in. It's just an open Sunday for everyone. Uh, our regular Sunday teaching will, will be held just like this one was. And uh, we start in the morning at sunrise by taking uh, a one-day vow of our uh, observance vows, which are uh, pretty much like the 10 precepts of refuge that we talked about. You can read more about that on the website and I'll do some postings of those. So I wanted to thank everybody for coming. And like always remember that, that SBT was, was created for one purpose and one purpose only, to support you. That's all we're here for is to support you in your practice. Let us know whatever we can do to, to help you uh, uh, on your way to awakening. Peace and prayers, friends. Bye-bye. Thank you, Tata. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.